Matt Laswitz, and welcome back to Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman story ranking podcast, where each week, my co-host, Will Nevin, and I will dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our soon-to-be big list, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. And before we go any further, let's further introduce my co-host, Will. How you doing, brother Will? I'm doing all right. A gremlin just jumped into my lap here. Oh, hi there. Oh, don't don't cool. let her look uh, fool you. She's a monster. <laughs> they all are at heart. Uh, I think my, my monsters are both down spending time with Amber, which is just, it's good for them, but I'm sure one or the other will wander in at some point or another because you know, that's what cats do. They wander. And we'll have more talk of cats later on in this episode. Ooh, uh, coming attractions. Yes. Our first episode focused on the origins of the Dark Knight. So this week, we're jumping forward to the climax of his adventures with three different versions of the end of Batman. And we'll be starting off with what is probably the best known last Batman story, Batman The Dark Knight Returns. Dark Knight Returns was a four-issue miniseries published June to December of 1986. The writer was Frank Miller, also penciled by Miller, with inks by Klaus Janssen, Colors by Lynn Varley, letters by John Costanza, and editorial from Dick Giordano and Denny O'Neill. We discussed Miller and his various problems as a creator and human being last episode, uh, but we'll just cycle back for those who haven't heard that episode to say Miller's not a good dude. In recent years, he's made various really uncomfortable Islamophobic content comments, and his misogyny is pretty much everywhere in his work. This could be taken as some hot takes in here, but there is no hot take about this book. This is cold reasoned takes on a book that I will be completely honest, I found very clunky in the reread. Absolutely. And this is very much a product of its era. This is 1980s Ronald Reagan in some of our pre-show discussion we, we, we really focused in on this and, and that it's just such a product of its era. And, and my idea, at least as I told you, is that I feel like Miller looked at what was happening in the world and had no other outlet, no other possible way to vent his frustrations at Ronald Reagan than to write it into a Batman story. And there are so many things going on in this book. Harvey Denton has this weird cameo. You have what amounts to the last Joker story. You have this titanic fight between Batman and Superman that's condensed into what feels like five pages at the end of almost 200. And none of it seems to get it's just due. And to see all of these threads just kind of thrown together is is a bit strange. It also has a use of Oliver Queen at the end who just kind of pops in, which I think is maybe a reference to, you know, Denny O'Neill, who is editing the book and whose other legendary run is other than his Batman run is Green Arrow, Green Lantern. I would have thought it would have been interesting to really 
counterpoint Miller's somewhat more fascistic Batman with the classic liberal Green Arrow, but that really doesn't happen here either. I know that in one version of the trade of this book, there is some overview and script notes, and I believe Oliver was added after Miller's initial pitch, but I don't have that copy of the trade, and I tried to dig dig up that bit and couldn't find it. But there's a lot of other very 80s stuff in here on top of the Reagan stuff. The way it looks at the media and the way it looks at psychology and psychiatry is so very, very 80s that sort of look at all psychiatry is complete quackery is something you'd see in 80s sitcoms and popular media a lot. And Miller has no sympathy whatsoever for these shrinks who, and that, that is not a nice term, but it is absolutely what Miller is writing here. He's not writing psychologists. He's writing pop shrinks. And they're, you know, they're a butt of so many jokes. Two things. Uh, one, I think I have the trade you're looking for, and I'll, I'll read what it says about uh, Green Lantern in the notes. The plot for the last chapter, The Dark Knight Falls, is particularly interesting for the way it builds to a subtly different and darker ending. The changes that became the published version gave us truer and more emotionally satisfying versions of both Batman and Superman and the climax in general. Still, there is great fascination in seeing Batman fall by his own hand rather than battling Superman in observing that there is no role provided for Green Arrow, parentheses, a creepy government agent fulfills a similar function in a much more cynical way, in parentheses, and in admiring the switch from the final image used here to the one ultimately used. Okay, I th- yes, that's, that is what I remember having read that, or that bit in the trade at some point or another. So, okay, I was good, correct, good for me. <laughs> and second, I think everything in terms of media commentary and consumerism and Reaganism, all of the commentary that's in this book, uh, RoboCop did better. Yeah, I can completely see that. Miller doesn't do a lot in here that's not done elsewhere and is done better in other most other places. The asides where he brings in these, you know, random Gothamites, you know, you learn their name and then bad things happen to them. This is clearly a guy who'd worked with Chris Claremont. And that's the angry Claremontian narrator and Claremont's little tick of introducing a background character, giving them a background just to kill them off. Only Miller tends to make them suffer even more before he does something, before he kills them off. It's, again, very much of its particular time. I think the scene like that that stuck out to me the most is, you know, he describes this poor mother who is on the subway, who's exhausted after a hard day of work. The economy's bad. Tips are shit. But you know what? She's so excited to get home to her son and take care of her son. Uh, she gets mugged by the mutants, and she's like, oh, my God, I can't believe this is terrible. Please don't take my, my son's, you know, paintbrushes. Oh, they reverse pickpocketed me and left me a bomb. And then it explodes and she dies. And that's like, that's so dark and cynical and awful, and it doesn't really add anything to the book. Yes, that was the that's the one that always sticks in my head too. And it is, it is an incredibly cynical bit. And this book is so cynical 
up until the last two pages, when it suddenly tries to go for this hopeful, Bruce has this younger generation and all the time in the world, and he's moved beyond Batman, and he's going to create a better world ending that doesn't feel tremendously earned. Especially when you think about the sons of Batman are just marginally redeemed gang members, which is weird. Very marginally redeemed. I mean, they're, they are being pretty friggin' terrible up through most of the fourth issue. And I understand just how much nuclear panic was a part of the 80s zeitgeist, but it always feels to me like the EMP and everything is in there just because Miller really wanted to draw Batman on a horse. How can I get a draw Batman on a horse? Oh yeah, that that, the splash page of Batman on the horse with Carrie Kelly on the horse and the mutants, the former mutant sons of Batman behind him, is one of the best pages in that entire book. It's phenomenal, but it's kind of oh, it absolutely does. We just mentioned her briefly, but Carrie Kelly's pretty interesting character. No character in this book is terribly well fleshed out, except for. Batman himself, but I would have loved reading it to see more of her. She's a solid character for this book. Probably the only thing that really still reads well in terms of characters and ideas and things that you can just like enjoy without any kind of guilt to it. Yeah, I'll definitely agree with that. And for a female Miller character, she is not overly sexualized selena kyle is a get is treated probably even worse here than she is in year one this by the way predates year one by issue one of this predates issue one of year one by eight months so these came out within a pretty tight turnaround so the the selena as the madam concept here feeds into selena as a sex worker in year one I was curious about the timeline, but I didn't do the hard work to actually look it up. But that's that's really interesting. Um, I, you, you would have thought they would have been separated by some amount of time. Part one of Dark Knight hit in June of 86. And the one thing I didn't check if that's cover date or street date, but. Still, the first three issues came out one month apart, so June, July, and August, and then there's a three-month gap, and issue four hits in December, and Batman 404 is February of 87, so two months after the last issue of Dark Knight, the first issue of year one hits. Could you imagine turning over so much of your machinery and intellectual property to Frank Miller? In 1986? Maybe. Now? Oh, hell no. <laughs> His run on Daredevil is arguably, and I would still say it, probably the best Daredevil had ever been. And still is. It reads better than a lot of his other work. This also came out, by the way, just as an interesting note, right as the last issue of Born Again hit, his return to Daredevil with Mazzucchelli. That was February to August of 86. So this overlaps a little with the end of Born Again. So they were pretty much doing Born Again and it must have started year one pretty much right after that story ended. The center of the comics universe. Fascinating. Yeah, 
this this story does not hold up nearly as well as year one does but there are some really cool moments in here when miller cuts loose artistically it can be gorgeous but those 12 to 16 panel grid pages don't allow for a lot of those wide expansive things he can do i mean those splash pages are phenomenal some of the action i mean that you're right that fight with superman is really compressed but it's a very cool fight conceptually I think a lot of people who remember this book very fondly remember the high points and don't remember all of the other stuff that goes on. They remember the bits and pieces of the opening issue. They remember the two fights with the mutant leader. They remember the fight with the Joker. They remember the fight with Superman. They don't remember all of the other stuff that's going on in this book. And yeah. It's a it's a thing. <laughs> this book is a thing. A uh, couple of other just bits and pieces from my notes. I am also uncomfortable with how casual Batman is using guns at the beginning of this book. The fact that he brings a rifle to the top of the uh, Gotham World Trade Center, which is something that would not fly at any point in the past 20 years. Either a rifle on top of the World Trade Center or the World Trade Center in general. We haven't talked about the Joker, and we probably should mention the Joker as this is a really major take on that character. This sinister and effete Joker is further along in queer coding than any version of the Joker was before. And the Joker, there are people who will have said the Joker, many supervillains, the Joker being a big example of them are very queer coded but this joker is right on the line of going from coded into flat out campy almost british pantomime i mean his first line in the book when he sees batman back on the news is darling i mean he is flat out in love with Batman. And their final fight does take place in the tunnel of love. Like we are we are not very far removed from like taking the subtext to text. I think the more interesting like read on the Joker and fleshing this particular version of the Joker out comes in Last Crusade. And uh, again in our in our pre-show notes and discussions uh, I said, well, you know, I'll take that on as kind of an interesting thought experiment to to sort of read it, you know, chronologically in the story. And I got to say, I enjoyed Last Crusade more because it was tighter. It was focused on Todd and Joker and really just kind of the, the physical frailty of Bruce Wayne. And I thought it was a, just a much better story. The art, eh, not so much, but, you know, Reasonable people can disagree on JRJR, uh, but you get much more of the Joker in that story. And it has that great sinister ending. Um, this, like I said earlier, just feels forced and shoehorned. I, I do like how uh, Joker is just a, uh, a homicidal maniac and everybody's just like, oh, well, yeah, let's bring him on TV, see what happens. Um, <laughs> Miller barely hiding that it's David Letterman, which again, it's, it's so so very 80s. 
Letterman um, and Dr. Ruth, who is also a barely masked caricature of Dr. Ruth. Ask your parents, kids. Uh, <laughs> not, not that you kids should be listening without your parents. The show has an E for a reason. So we've got to start wrapping this one up. We want to stay roughly within our time frame. But I want to ask one question at the end before we rank this bad boy. Is this the story that is responsible for pretty much everything bad we've gotten in Batman stories in the past 30 years? I can't blame anyone else immediately. It did get us Batman versus Superman, and that's bad enough. I mean, I, I think it's, it is the same problem. Alan Moore has said about Watchmen that you know this is 30 years of comics based off of a bad mood i was in in the mid 80s and so it's not completely miller's fault but i think this story is something miller probably feels better about than more feels about watchmen so with all that being said where are we going to rank this on our list uh being that this is episode two we only have three stories on our list uh, number one being Batman Year One, number two being Zero Year, and number three being the case of the Chemical Syndicate. This doesn't beat Year One. We can oh, no. say that flat out. Does it beat Zero Year? If you would have asked me last week, I would have told you no. Reading it this week, I enjoyed it a little bit more than I was expecting. And man, Zero Year just drug on and on and on and on. For me, I'm going to argue number two here. Uh, I I can agree with that. I think that for all, I mean, I have problems with it, but it has some really cool moments. And for its historical import, both within Batman and within comics in general, I think this earns slot number two. So our second story for this episode is interesting in that it kind of bridges the gap in between year one and dark knight in that it is both an early batman story and a final batman story this is some of these days batman volume three annual number two published january 2018 written by tom king with art by lee weeks and michael lark colors by elizabeth breitweiser and june chung letters by deron bennett and edited by jamie s rich and maggie howell right up front i love this story i think this is a beautiful story in art and while it is a a a fairly simple story it is a it's great yeah, let's uh, let's not get too technical here. Um, it is great, and you know we're who knows the next time we're going to take up uh, Tom King and his run. I think the best thing you can say about King's run is that it was very focused on. Oh, I, I feel my my skin crawling even thinking this. Uh, it was very focused on Bat Cat, um, and the worst thing you can say about King's run is that it was focused on Bat Cat. Probably the moment that broke me when I was like, brah, you're, you're too focused, you're too obsessed, you're too concerned with this romance. The issue where Alfred dies, you have that absolutely brutal graphic splash page of his neck getting twisted. Like it was one of the most violent moments in, you know, say the last 10 years in a mainline title. 
And then that's not the conclusion. The conclusion is, you know, Batman, Catwoman standing on a rooftop saying, we're going to go back to Gotham. That was his big hook at the end of the issue. Not this violent, abhorrent moment where he chooses to kill off Alfred in the way that he does. It is, again, premised on, on Batcat. So that all aside, this is an issue. This is a story where you can make that romance the focus. And it works without detracting from anything else. This is a story, one of the best Batman Catwoman romance comics out there. It really makes you understand why these two characters work together. I like a rom- a romantic plot that ma- that shows you why these characters are interesting on their own and why they're more interesting together. And that's what you get in this book. You get the opening, the first half, the the past half, where Selina is just jerking around with Bruce to try to encourage him to toughen up in his early days because she actually cares and is worried that his soft spots are going to get him killed. And the end is tragic. It's it's the the death of a, a strong man, not at the hand in a final duel with the Joker, not you know to save the world. It's cancer. He just dies like a person. And after dementia, yeah, it's it's King has handled all sorts of things not too great, especially as his run and his writing in recent years has continues to develop but this handles that stuff well it really does you feel selena's pain when she and bruce are leaving the doctor it overwhelms her is just it's a it's a gut punch of a moment visually too you see that bruce is in his own world now lost in his memories and he keeps walking she stays behind consumed with the emotion in that moment and visually from a story standpoint that just all of it works and you have to wonder if i'm tom king i write this issue why do i feel like i have anything else to say about batman and catwoman much less you know 12 issues um right isn't that 12 it's yep back the the miniseries that is currently running is 12 issues if if a miniseries is ongoing and no one reads it, does it actually matter? Well, we'll find out after 12 issues, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> and I, the art in this issue is phenomenal. I mean, Lee Weeks and Michael Lark are both are two great artists, two artists whose work I really, really love. But what works here is that their styles are not the same, but they're in the same school of art. So it doesn't feel really discordant when we switch from the past, which is weeks, to the future, which is Lark. You know, this might have helped the Batman Catwoman miniseries if there were different artists on those different time periods to better demarcate which one is which. Just And saying. also this story flowed quite nicely almost almost seamlessly whereas batman catwoman is goddamn jarring every time you try to pick it up and read it which is why we stopped reading it yes 
it, it it is a delightfully quiet issue. I mean, yeah, there's what action there is is low enough stakes. It's just this game of cat and mouse, which is kind oh, of a oh. pun on the story if you've read it with Selena leaving the mice. But it's it doesn't need to work in some big action set piece where the Joker pops up in the middle of it and Bruce and Selena have to work together to stop him or the Riddler has a, a bomb in Gotham. No, it's just these two characters exploring their relationship. And it's got just enough really touching the, the scene at Bruce's bedside as he dies with the, the bat family in the background and that final moment that even at his end, when he wasn't all there anymore, he buys her the kitten and he leaves it for her to give her that last gift because Batman's always prepared. It is a very Batman moment. Wholesome. Yes. It does something that so many lesser Batman stories forget is that for all of his drive, for all of his darkness, Bruce Wayne, Batman, he has a heart. He is not a cold, unfeeling sociopath. If you want that, read The Punisher. That's the thing that people when you write Batman too much down one line, he becomes the Punisher. It's something that Batman the Animated Series always, and that universe that that takes place in, always gets right. There's that uh, the f- episode Harley's Holiday, where Harley breaks, she's released from Arkham, and through a whole series of events, winds up causing chaos all over Gotham, simply because she bought her first new dress and forgot to have that little security tag taken off of it. <laughs> And in the end, when she gets brought back to Arkham because she's caused all the chaos, Batman shows up and he gives her the dress because she had said something about having a bad day. And he's, I had a bad day too once. Or the uh, episode of Justice League Unlimited epilogue where the the Royal Flush Gang of that universe, this sort of crazy superpowered Royal Flush Gang, is there an ace who's this incredibly powerful psychic, this young teenage girl with incredible psychic powers her powers are killing her. And in the end, she's created this like elaborate maze. And Bruce is the one, while well, the Justice League are fighting the rest of the gang, Bruce makes it to the middle where Ace is on the swings. And she knows she's dying. And Bruce just sits on the swing next to her and is there with her when she dies. And he knows, and he he doesn't, you know, there's there are versions of Batman who would knock out the late teens, early 20s, girl who is dying and that's not that's not batman batman does have sympathy he does have empathy and this story understands that batman loves the people around him even if he doesn't necessarily know how to show it every time absolutely and because we see both his his physical and mental frailty in this story it is a very human story and we don't always get that, especially in you know what amounted to be uh, your standard regular old monthly. So I think this is just a standout story. It is one of definitely one of the highlights of the King Run. I won't say that 
it's the best issue. We still have many King stories to discuss over the course of this podcast, but it's definitely going to be high up there. It's going to be up there with cold days. It's going to be up there with annual four, which is that week in the life of Batman with all these weird little vignettes that also has a couple of those really, the, the one that always is the little old lady who's go who's suffering from dementia who wanders out of her apartment on a semi-regular basis that bruce is always there to bring back to her apartment it's like see king for all of his other foibles gets some of those bits of batman that so many other writers don't maybe he should have just stuck to the annuals yeah (laughs) We'll, we'll see as we continue on this this journey So I think that means it is time for us to add this to the list. We're definitely, we're not, we're not in slot. What will be slot five? Is this, where does this, it it doesn't beat year one. So are we in between dark Knight and zero year? Are we in between zero year in case of the criminal syndicate? Are we in between year one and dark Knight? So, on the strength of that final page and still being able to feel something, having read this and then and coming back to it this week, I say second spot. I'm, you know, I was going back and forth on this one because it's like Dark Knight is this really important story. But let's be honest, this is not a definitive list. This is not us ranking these based on what is the greatest or even the best this is what we like the most so you know what i am in agreement boom so done uh, yep some of these days is going to be number two on our list batman volume three annual number two and so now we enter the final story of this week this is a weird one folks Uh, And one of the fun things about this is this is a story that I had not read before this podcast. So this is a, a, this was a new one for me. This is the last Batman story, question mark, uh, from Batman volume one, issue number 300. The writer was David Verne Reed. The penciler is Walt Simonson. The inker is Dick Giordano. Colors by Jerry Serp. Letters by Shelley Lefferman and edited by... Julie Schwartz and E. Nelson Bridwell. Oh, and was published in March of 1978. So before we go into it, uh, had you ever heard of David Vern Reed before you read this story, Will? Absolutely not. You know, the name tickled the back of my head a little, and I know he'd written other Batman stuff, but it was not a name I was particularly familiar with. So I, I went in and I did a little dig he was actually one of the golden age writers of Batman. Uh, he initially wrote stories back in 1949 and 1950, Whoa. including Two-Face Strikes Again, the second Two-Face story, Joker's Millions, which was adapted into an episode of Batman, uh, the new Batman adventures, and Joker's Utility Belt, which became a two-parter in Batman 66. And he returned in 1975 and wrote sporadically through the late 70s, including the legendary four-part Where Were You the Night Batman Was Killed. So he has quite a Batman CV. And this is a 
weird little story that takes place sometime in a not too distant but slightly distant future where various corporate attacks are happening on Wayne International and Batman and Robin Dick Grayson who is Bruce is sort of a chairman emeritus of the company and Dick is the president have to go into costume to get involved this bizarre criminal organization called the Spectrum who is attacking Wayne Enterprises it's it's something else it is a very different future from either of the other futures we have seen. It is very shiny and very late 70s. In your retelling, I don't think you quite got across just how <laughs> nutty and bizarre this story is. When, when the man says spectrum, they are literally organized along like houses of color. And like these colors are very important. And the technology is like, very futuristic. This is almost Batman 2099. And yet Gordon is just a little bit older. Like he's retired. He's researching his memoirs in Maine, I think. In so Ogunquit, Maine. Well, I, I specifically you. remember because it's like, oh, that's the place uh, Franny Goldsmith is from in the stand. That, that is how I remember <laughs> that. Robin is just a little bit older. He's about that Nightwing age, prime fighting shape. His, his costume is a little futuristic. Bruce, I think, has a has some gray at the temples. Uh, like this could be Gotham like five years from now, but it's like spaceports and spaceships and bases, and it's just it's so fucking weird. It's so weird. It's so very. 70s you know yeah i mean there are hospitals in space and what one of the things that got me is like oh wow they're dealing with cyber espionage this this, that little bit i mean granted they have to physically steal data tapes but it's like oh wow cyber cyber security was something they were thinking about in 1978 with wayne international and what what got me about it is it's like okay yeah it's kind of strange but you get to the very end, and the the guys behind this organization are these like weird psychic whatever that completely comes out of left field. And I was like, boy, this feels like more than just one issue's worth of plot. Like there was going to be more to this. And then I realized, no, wait, this is the 70s when they were still sort of in that silver and bronze age thing where it's like let's just cram a whole bunch of crazy ideas into a comic and run with it and that's is kind of fun i i I like the fact that you can do one issue with all these crazy ideas that doesn't have to become a six 12 part epic because if this story was told today this is a 12 part story this is a 12 part story my friend don't don't give scott snyder any ideas (laughs) The thing that just soured me on this issue, it's nuttiness aside, the first, or not, not the first page, but the cover promises it's going to be the last Batman story, question mark. We get to that idea, where is it? In the last two pages, the last two fucking pages are, hey, uh, I think I'm going to run for governor, maybe. I don't know. We'll figure it out. Like, that's, that's the only thing that ties into the last Batman idea. And 
it feels very much like, okay, we got this weird sci-fi story sitting on over here. Oh, shit, this is going to be our 300th issue. Let's tack this thing onto it as, as some idea of how Batman might end. And it just feels rushed and silly, and it has no emotional consequence or resonance or anything. And, of course, it's not followed up on in Batman 301 or ever. Uh, because I would have I would have been curious to read like Batman running for governor. What was that like? Does does he have like some kind of pause in in deciding whether to do this or not? What are the consequences uh, in Batman 2099 when Bruce Wayne decides to run for governor? Nope, none of that. So there's also the weird line about maybe asking the woman I love to marry me. And it's just the woman I love which is very different from the previous story we just discussed, where it's very clear that that's Catwoman. There are a few instances of future stories of Batman or stories of an aging Batman where they don't want to commit to who is the love of his life, which is so funny because, you know, the opposite of that being Superman, who's like every story of Superman in the future and now granted in the present is like, well, yeah, Lois Lane. It's always going to be Lois Lane. Speaking of two characters who bring out the best in each other as a couple. Superman and Lois Lane absolutely work in that way. She grounds him and he keeps her from turning into Deb Donovan, who I love. Uh, If you aren't reading Detective Comics right now, Deb Donovan is Lois Lane with a drinking problem in a city with no hope, which is a great character. Likes to drink that one. Oh yeah, a little bit. And by a little bit, I mean, you know, up there with Nick and Nora Charles uh, with the, the love of a, always a drink in her hand. That was an odd little moment where it's like, I literally, my notes say, uh, that, that's not much of an ending about the, the whole thing, as you said. I'll also say there's one line when they're, when they're talking to Gordon. And again, since I had never read this story before. I, I came into this kind of fresh and it was like, okay. So they're talking about the villains and like Catwoman is is off somewhere in Africa and the Joker and Two-Face are happily reformed. This might be the only story where the Joker is happily reformed. And then there's a line about, you know, and the Riddler, who knows where he is? I was like, oh, so Riddler is going to be behind Spectrum. That line, that's Chekhov's gun. Nope, that was just a throwaway line. His final puzzle unsolved. Yeah. I figured that that was absolutely like, okay, that was a, a, a hint that Spectrum or whatever they were called, the Rainbow or whatever they were calling them at that point was going to be the a Riddler plot. It's like, nope, nope. Just continuing to sort of flesh out this weird little universe. Look, here's something that, that I saw and I'm curious what you think. There's a scene of Batcave 2099, Batcave Beyond. And it's something also that got me about in Batman Beyond, too. And in a lot of future tellings of Batman where you see the Batcave, the dinosaur is still there. The penny is still there. But there's no other, you know, major trophies. You'd think if Batman was continuing to go on, there'd be something added to the trophy room. And in this particular case, with all of these, like, weird little world-building bits aside or included, You'd think that they would have added like a spaceship or of oh, the jo- the giant Joker car is probably there too, but something else to make it feel like the world had moved 
forward. But it's still just the same. I mean, it's a slightly futuristic Batcave, but that bit of the Batcave, which should allow an artist to run wild, there wasn't anything new added to it. Well, when this was produced, these poor guys were probably working on like seven issues at the time and probably about, you know, pushing product, making the sausage. Uh, not too much time for detail. Maybe. Maybe. It's, it's interesting you say that because this issue is drawn by Walt Simonson. Legend Walt Simonson. But this is pretty darn early in Simonson's career and is much more... Do, do not expect the Walt Simonson of Thor or even or the Walt Simonson of the Manhunter stuff from Detective here. This is Simonson very much in a DC house style. And more than that, knowing his other work, I have a feeling like this is Simonson doing layouts with Dick Giordano really finishing this book because it looks much more like a Giordano to me than it does a Simonson. I mean, Giordano, I mean, other than being like editor in chief at DC for a long time, was a major inker for a lot of years. And I mean, did some penciling here and there, but I always think of him as this, you know, inker. And looking at this book, I was like, oh, yeah, this is definitely feels like Giordano doing heavy finishes, if not more than that, over a Simonson layout. It's so cool to see Simonson doing Batman because Simonson. Like I went and I was like, oh, he must have done a ton of Batman over the years. Like, no, you, know, you could probably count all the real Batman stories Simonson has done on both your hands. I mean, there, there's a bunch of great stories in there. There's a Dreadful Birthday, Dear Joker, the Manhunter, which is really a Manhunter story, but it's in a backup and detective and Batman comes in at the end of that story. It's, it's interesting that this is very much the 70s and still very much in a DC sort of generic style so yeah i i can absolutely see where you're coming from there with the this is just let's bang this sucker out quickly and get it done in a recognizable sort of style come on come on come on come on boys come on come on come on <laughs> we got things to do come on well I, I don't i don't i don't care about your uh your back cave details come on yeah I will also say, I, I was also kind of befuddled by what exactly Spectrum was. I mean, you first see them and it's like, oh, we're holding a nostalgia auction. It's like, huh, toxic nostalgia, even a problem in 1978. <laughs> yeah, but then it's suddenly like, okay, now we're corporate espionage. And we have, you know, goons who are, you know, infiltrating space stations to kill government agents who infiltrated our organization there's a, a these guys have their their evil fingers in a lot of different pies and we're really into colors <laughs> yes i wonder if jeff johns read this back as a child and this inspired all the green lantern color spectrum stuff. oh <laughs> no no i i don't want to associate this with, with jeff johns I, I don't want to do that to this story and hey Alfred is still alive in this story. And he was still alive in Dark Knight. Says something. Says that you really need Alfred around. Just saying. Just, just throwing it out there. Uh, although, uh, you know, circling all the way back to, uh, to Dark Knight, it is so strange that Alfred keels over dead in that final scene. Like, why? Why are you going to do that? It, it struck me as Miller just didn't have anything better to do with Alfred. And he's like, 
he's not going to hang out in that damn cave with Batman and, and, and Robin now. Uh, it's better to just kill him. Yeah, yeah. We're not going to give him uh, Bruce Wayne's money and, and go have a nice life like uh, at least uh, Rises had the sense to do. One of the, the few really optimal bits of Rises is Alfred gets to, you know, live on the in Italy and chill. I like that fate for Alfred. He deserves it. He does. I mean, he's raised how many superheroes? He he deserves the, the he deserves a good retirement. But yeah, I think that kind of wraps. Unless you have any particular final notes on this one, I think that that ends our discussion here. Uh, and, I will say one. Sorry to, to sure to, to no. screw up your closing. Um, one final attempt to bottom line this thing. It's um, it's Moonraker on acid. <laughs> I yes. Yes, I, I like that. We didn't really discuss the space stuff, but there's a lot of weird space stuff in this book that really doesn't affect the plot any and just makes it futury. So, space was the thing. Yeah, absolutely. So with that said, I, I, I'm really probably thinking in between Zero Year and Case of the Criminal Syndicate. I'm thinking slot five for the last Batman story, question mark. I would not be opposed, but... Because it failed to deliver on its premise of being a last Batman story, I hold a grudge. I would put it at six. Mm. I mean, I can see where you're coming from. And the case of the criminal syndicate, uh, I always say criminal, I mean chemical. The case of the chemical syndicate does at least have the historical significance of being the first Batman story. Uh, this is not, you know, there, there will be, I am sure, points where there will be hills that I am willing to die on, this is not one of them. So I am more than willing to happily seed this point and drop this in at number six. So now our, our list has stretched to a whole six ish, six stories. We're, we've multiplied the list by two. Good for us. By God, my grudge carried the day. So that looks like it is it for the second episode of bat chat with matt and will uh hope you enjoyed it uh and if, if you didn't fuck you yeah <laughs> then, then don't come back next week because we, we haven't quite decided on what next week's stories are going to be but guess what folks it's going to be the same nonsense over and over again you're just gonna have to get used to us but if you are used to us and you do want to hear more of uh, our ramblings uh you can visit comics xf for our weekly Friday Bat Chat Roundup of new Bat books uh, and various other things Will and I are writing. You can see find that at comicsxf.com or comicsxf on Twitter. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and all of my ramblings about the three Cs, comics, cinema, and cats at MattLaz1013 and Will at Will Nevin. Thanks for joining me, Will. Looking forward to next time. As always, it was and, a pleasure. Yeah, And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.